The United States Supreme Court recently heard oral arguments on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case involving a Mississippi law that bans all abortions prior to the point of fetal viability. If the court ends up siding with the Mississippi law, it would have to overturn a very important precedent, Roe v. Wade, in part or in whole. What does this reveal, or what would this reveal about the court's grasp of the concept of individual rights and the role of government? That's a question we're going to talk about on today's episode of New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. We're going to talk about Roe v. Wade on the brink. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me today is ARI Senior Fellow, my colleague, Ankar Gatte. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. So I thought we should start by first giving our audience just some background uh, context on the history of this case, how it came to be argued uh, just this last week, uh, and also some background on ARI's position on the abortion controversy, uh, which of course derives from Ayn Rand's thinking on this topic. So of course, I think uh, many people know about how uh, Roe v. Wade uh, was decided in 1973. It's what recognized uh, formally and legally a right to abortion in the United States. Uh, but it recognized this right in a kind of qualified way. It said that the woman's interest in uh, her own choice needed to be balanced against uh, the state's so-called interest in childbirth. And the way that Roe sought to achieve this balance was by limiting the right to abortion uh, to what at that time was treated as the end of the second trimester in pregnancy, the point at which the fetus was viable, could be, which it could survive outside uh, the mother's womb. Now, in 1992, in, a, in an important uh, statement on Roe, the court reaffirmed at least the most fundamental provisions of that decision in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case. However, uh, at stake in this controversy was a series of state level regulations on uh, abortions, in this case uh, coming from the state of Pennsylvania, which sought to impose waiting periods, spousal notifications, parental consent requirements on women who wanted to get an abortion. And at this point, the court said uh, pre-viability, pre these can be regulated provided they don't pose or provide an undue burden on the woman's ability to get an abortion. Uh, so that was a that was one uh, walking back at least one important part of Roe v. Wade. And since that time, conservatives have made a, a, an effort to place more and more of their judges on the federal bench, including on the Supreme Court, with the eventual goal of overturning Roe. Uh, we saw this reach kind of a zenith in the Trump administration. He placed three judges on uh, the on the uh, on the Supreme Court. And seeing that this was happening, uh, many different states that were uh, uh, that had Republican governments basically passed a whole new series of increasing restrictions on abortion. And uh, some of those have been overturned by lower courts. Uh, some of them uh, have not. But this recent case, in which a Mississippi law, the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, banned nearly all abortions after. Uh, 15 weeks um, is the one that has now made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And what's remarkable about this is that on face, this, this law in Mississippi directly challenges Roe insofar as it 
definitely doesn't just regulate but prohibits abortions prior to viability. And so if the Supreme Court is going to side with Mississippi, it would have to throw out something important about Roe. Uh, and so Ankar, do you have any additional uh, context to provide about this history uh, or about our you know, ARI's position on the abortions controversy? Well, it might, it might be useful to put ARI's position in contrast with this history and, and sort of the way the history is framed. So as you put it rightly, that they think that there's interests that they have to balance. And then it, the question is getting the proper balance and the proper mechanism by which to do the balancing. And the Casey decision in, in mo and modifying, and but significantly modifying, when you read the decision, they say like, Roe is wrong about this, Roe is wrong about that. We're, we're reaffirming its what we take to be its core principle that a woman, in at least in the early stages of pregnancy has a right to decide to abort without uh, an undue burden or and it will be put in some different ways, but, but something like that. They think that's the essence of Roe, they're reaffirming that, but the way that Roe did the balancing is wrong and we've got to substantially modify that. The breaking it up into three trimesters and thinking of pregnancy like that and that that's what's crucial for in balancing, they're rejecting that. What Ayn Rand rejects and what we at ARI reject in, because we agree with her on this issue that, that this is a very significant issue in terms of about thinking about rights and freedoms. What is at stake is really important. And there, the, this whole perspective that there's something to balance, that there's things with competing interests, she rejects that there's only one thing here. There's, uh, when we're talking about human beings, actual human beings who have a life who you can talk about as, as engaged in the activity of pursuing their own happiness and then making decisions about that, what their happiness consists in, the life that they want to live. There's only one entity here, the, the woman who is pregnant. And so the only issue is, does she have a right to end her pregnancy if that's what she decides would be best for her life and for her happiness? There's no anyone else with any other kind of claim here. So the only question is, does a woman have that right? And Ayn Rand's answer is, yeah, if you understand what the right to life means, it means you have to have the control over the the decisions you make about the values you're going to pursue, that what is going to, in its specifics and its particulars, what will comprise your life? Do you want to have children? When, with whom? Um, that, I mean, it, it's, it's an essential part of a life if you're choosing to have children or if you're not. And the idea that somebody else can make that decision and force you in effect, and, and both sides to not have children if you want to have children, so like if you think China's one child policy, that they can say, no, you can't have any more children, that, that government has no power, that is a right of an individual to, to make that decision. And similarly, the decision to say, no, I'm not going to have any children. And even if I got pregnant, I'm going to end the pregnancy. That's part of the a, a, a woman's 
right to life and right to the pursuit of happiness. And once you understand that, that's all there, that's it. Then it's, yeah, this is obviously falls within the right of a woman. And she then has to have the freedom to exercise that right. And there's nothing to balance with. There's no state interest. And there's no, um, I mean, the, the balancing is even more complex the way that they think about it in Roe and then Casey. It's sort of, it's, you can think of it as there's three things balancing. It's the right of the woman. It's the state interest in the health of the woman. And then it's the state interest in potential life. And we've got to get some, we have to balance this and kind of have some kind of mechanism and formula. And Ayn Rand rejects that completely. You just don't understand rights and you don't understand the American conception of government, that the government just exists to secure and protect rights, not to pursue interests of its own. Yeah, I think it's worth also pointing out that because she had that view that the only function of government is to protect rights, uh, she also, and she, she expressed uh, her approval of the Roe verdict, at least the, the outcome of it, as being a distinct improvement over status quo ante. Uh, and I, I don't think she, she said that she didn't agree with all of its reasons. We'll talk about uh, some of the, I mean, presumably part of it is because she, the reasons were conceived of in terms of this balancing act that you've just described. Um, but she actually also thought that uh, abortion rights should be protected until birth. And that would be one way in which she disagreed with it. She didn't think that it, it went yeah. far enough. Uh, so, but we should take a look at some of the actual arguments that uh, have now come up in, uh, that came up in the oral arguments last week. And we have some clips we'd like to show and comment on. And of course, the, the leading criticism of the Roe decision by conservatives is that the right to abortion is something that can't be found in the Constitution. And this is something that there was a good amount of exchange about in these recent oral arguments. And so we should take a look first at an exchange between Justice Thomas and the Attorney General of Mississippi on this subject. So let's go to the first clip. Uh, General Stewart, um, you focus on the right to abortion, uh, but our jurisprudence seems to seem to focus on uh, in Casey uh, autonomy uh, in Roe uh, privacy. Um, does it make a difference that we focus on privacy or autonomy or more specifically on abortion? I think whichever one of those you're focusing on, Your Honor, particularly if you're focusing on, on the right to abortion, um, each of those starts to become a step removed for what's provided in the Constitution. Yes, the Constitution does provide, uh, cert protect certain aspects of privacy, of autonomy, and the like. But as this court said in Glucksburg, uh, going directly from general concepts of autonomy, um, of privacy, of bodily integrity uh, to, to a right is not how we traditionally, this court traditionally does due process analysis. So I think it just confirms whichever one of those you look at, Your Honor, uh, a right to abortion is, is not grounded in the text and it's grounded on um, abstract uh, concepts that this court has rejected in, in other contexts is supplying a substitute. You say that. So a few things to note there. Uh, Justice Thomas is trying to get clear on uh, uh, how to conceive of the right of abortion in terms of the Constitution. And there are, there's a question of, is it supposed to be about a right to privacy or autonomy or something else? And I mentioned before that Ayn Rand herself didn't agree with the, all of the reasoning that went into Roe, 
to the extent that Roe relied on this alleged right to privacy, I think that was one of the reasoning that that, that was one of the arguments that she rejected. She didn't think there was a, a, a right to privacy. And it's, it's a dis, kind of distorting distraction for Justice Thomas to bring it in here. Uh, abortion's not about uh, the, the need to keep some information secret. It's about a woman's liberty to pursue her happiness, as I think you were emphasizing earlier, Ankar. Uh, though it's worth mentioning that Roe also talked about the 14th Amendment and the concept of personal liberty that it was enshrined to protect. And it's noteworthy that the most of the legal uh, defense of Roe is now actually focused on that aspect of it. It even comes up in these oral arguments we'll see later on. So put the issue of, Roe, of, of right to privacy aside for the moment. There's also this exchange, there's also this discussion in this exchange about how to determine what someone has a substantive right to. And both Justice Thomas and Mr. Stewart from Mississippi are sympathetic to the idea that if it's not concretely specified in the Constitution, that it can't count as a substantive right, that the fact that there are these abstract rights, whether it's to privacy or to liberty, it can't, we, one simply can't deduce from that its application to something like abortion. And, and I should say, I just, I find this as to be a, a bizarre argument because it would mean, you know, leave aside abortion, there's all kinds of activities that we engage in on a regular basis, which we could say we don't have a liberty right to engage in because it's not concretely specified in the constitution. So uh, do I have the right to make friends and to hang out with them and do things? Uh, that's not mentioned in the Constitution. So do I not have the right to make friends? Obviously, this is an issue that has come up in, in uh, more controversial ways, especially when you talk about marriage. And the court did find that you have the right to marry anyone you like, regardless of their race, uh, even though marriage isn't concretely specified in the Constitution. And it's part of the reason, of course, why the Constitution, why the Bill of Rights contains the Ninth Amendment, which says the enumeration in the Constitution of cer certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And that part always seems to get ignored in these discussions of whether it has to be in concretely enumerated. If you thought that it did have to be concretely enumerated, uh, to me, that would then treat the Constitution as not a set, not a charter of rights for individuals, but as a list of permissions, uh, where if it's not permitted, uh, it, or if it's not explicitly permitted, you can't claim that you have the right. But then that's treating the Constitution as, I think, the opposite of the way it should be treated, which is uh, a list of permissions for what government can do, not a list of permissions for what people can do. It's striking, Thomas's question there, it's striking how concrete bound it is. So, so one just, uh, and this is not, uh, what I want to focus on, but he brings up in, in what we played, he brings up Casey, that Casey's focused on autonomy. I don't think that's a real reading of Casey. Casey mentions liberty quite a few times in the, in the majority decision, so the, in the court's opinion. And to put it as it's focused just on autonomy, it does talk about autonomy, but it talks about autonomy as an aspect of liberty. 
and its focus is on liberty. So Roe is focused on privacy, and I agree that's a distraction. It's not only focused on privacy, but, or sorry, it doesn't only mention privacy. And as, as you said, it brings up the liberty clause um, in the amendments to the constitution and, and more than one of them. But it is, its focus is on privacy, I think. I think that is right. And that it's wrong in that regard to think that, that you want, that in exercising your rights, one thing you might do is keep certain information private is not the same as saying, well, you've got a right to privacy as that the, the, there's, the, there's some kind of fundamental principle. But it, it, in how concrete bound it is, would Thomas ask this about the right to property? Like, what do you mean you have a right to property? Um, okay, you've got a cell phone and you have house and you have a pair of sneakers and like, do you have a right to own these things? Where does that in the constitution say that it does? Like a right to privacy? That's so abstract, general, vague. How could, I mean, a right to property. How could we ever apply that? Um, and it's unlikely that he would ask that question. Um, so it it's a way of trying to get at, um, I think the, a vulnerability in Roe that it focuses on, in, on privacy and then of sort of recasting Casey as just focused on autonomy rather than liberty. So not to have to deal with the fundamental question, which is, is a proper understanding of liberty as articulated in the Declaration of Independence and as mentioned in clauses of the Constitution, is a proper understanding of it does that include that a woman can abort just as it includes things as things like you said that more not so much on the property side but yeah you can make friends um you can get married or not you can travel or not i mean there's all kinds of things that the liberty encompasses and is rightly understood to encompass and so there's a way in which i think he's thomas is trying to bypass the central issue and not have to argue yeah, I don't think liberty means that you have a, a woman has control over whether she's going to carry a fetus to term or not. Just to build on that point a bit, one place where I think you really see a kind of even hypocrisy about constitutional interpretation is with regard to gun rights. Uh, the Second Amendment is it does talk about the right to bear arms well-regulated militia being necessary for the people's defense. Uh, but someone could just as easily argue, okay, you've got the right to bear arms, but why does that mean you've got the right to own a handgun or uh, uh, some kind of hunting weapon? I mean, those you have to deduce it from the abstraction to some extent to, to understand how that's applicable. Um, also just mentioned, there's a, there's a reference to that passage that we played to a case called Glucksburg. Uh, which the Attorney General from Mississippi says, uh, in which the court says that you shouldn't go general, uh, directly from general concepts of autonomy to a right that's not specified. And it's true. This, so this is a uh, court a case that was decided in 1997, Washington v. Glucksburg. Uh, I read the case before uh, we, we did this podcast, and it's a case about assisted suicide. It uh, ends up saying there is no right to assisted suicide. Uh, I think the case is wrongly decided myself, but it, it's, it's noteworthy looking at the kind of reasoning that it gives, because its argument is that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which protects liberties, 
uh, only protects the liberties that are rooted in the nation's traditions, uh, which have been democratically decided, uh, where the people have had a say. And so it points to the fact there weren't many laws protecting, or there weren't any laws protecting uh, assisted suicide. And in fact, most of the laws ruled it out uh, at the time of the founding. Um, and part of the reason I think this is wrongly decided is because, I mean, it's true you can't just take the a completely empty concept of liberty and decide just from that what we have the liberty to do or not do. Because uh, otherwise you could say, well, I have the right to liberty so I can go out and kill whoever I want to. But of course, we're not working with a completely empty concept of liberty. We're working with a concept that's uh, defined by a certain philosophic tradition that the founders were working with, which includes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it's liberty in the service of individuals flourishing. And that, I mean, I think with that kind of understanding, that kind of philosophic understanding, you, can, you can't just slavishly defer to whatever tradition we had in the past if we, if we realize that for whatever reason, those laws were inconsistent with not just liber liberty specified in a completely empty way, but one which is aimed at helping individuals to live their lives and flourish. Uh, otherwise, you, I don't think you can make sense of, of why even the Washington v. Glucksburg decision conceded that the due process clause does protect rights to marry, have and raise children, use contraception, et cetera. These things aren't specified uh, in the constitution either. Uh, and in, and weren't always respected by our legal tradition either, notably the rights to marry, which which you know Loving v. Virginia had to recognize because there were laws against miscegenation. Yeah, there's a way. I mean, we should get to because there's another Thomas quote because he asked this of the others. Basically, the same question, a kind of question to the other side, and the the response is interesting. There's a way in which it is emptying the whole American system of, of government, of its actual foundation. If you push Thomas's line consistently, it's that you can't have abstract principles as law. Um, you need everything very concretely specified. But the whole conception of what the Constitution is doing is it's making good on the promise of the Declaration of Independence. And it's instituting the fundamental law of the land. And the, the only way to do that is through abstract principles. If it's really gonna be fundamental that it's governing all other laws and we look at them and think, are they constitutional or not? It has to be abstract in general. And this kind of question, then it, it empties the whole constitution of meaning in the end. If, he, if you seriously press it in logic that what it means. Okay, let's look at that next uh, Thomas clip where he reiterates his question. If, I, I know your interest here is in abortion. I understand that. But if I were to ask you what constitutional right protects the right to abortion? Um, is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What would it be? It's liberty, Your Honor. It's the uh, textual protection in the 14th Amendment that a state can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And the court has interpreted liberty to include the right to make family decisions and the right to physical autonomy, including the right to end a pre-viability pregnancy. So it's all of the above. Well, the, that's how the court has interpreted the liberty clause for over 100 years in cases going back to Meyer, Griswold, Carey, Loving, Lawrence. Yeah, but I mean, all of those sort of just come out of Lochner. 
uh, the, so it's that we, we've dropped part of it. So I understand what you're saying, but what I'm trying to focus on is if we is to lower the level of generality or at least be a little bit more specific. In the old days, we used to say it was a right to privacy that the court found in the uh, due process, substantive due process clause, okay? So, or in substantive due process. And I'm trying to get you to tell me what are we relying on now? Is it privacy? Is it autonomy? What is it? I think it continues to be liberty and the right exists whatever level of generality the court applies. There was um, a tradition under the common law for centuries of women being able to end their pregnancies. But in addition, when it comes to decisions related to family, marriage, and childbearing, the court has done the analysis at a higher level of generality. And that makes sense because otherwise the constitution would reinforce the historical discrimination against women. I think it's really interesting how he asked this question in a loaded way that doesn't even put liberty on the table. And she has to she has to reiterate it a couple of times. But then once she's done that, the way that he tries to dismiss it is by bringing in Lochner. And for those who don't know, uh, Lochner v. New York uh, was a 1905 case, which at the time overturned employment safety regulations on the grounds of economic liberty. Uh, and was uh, responsible for an era in which uh, laissez-faire economic principles won out in the, in the Supreme Court on the idea that, that your liberty to engage in production and trade was as substantial as your right to free speech and assembly and religion. Uh, but it's, a, it's an approach that was ended in the 1930s in a series of depression era decisions, which rejected the idea that economic liberty could be treated as a substantive liberty in the same way that the other enumerated liberties were. Um, and this is why to this day, there is there are basically no restrictions on what uh, kinds of economic liberties the government can restrict, as long as they have some kind of rational basis for doing so, it's, it's recognized as justifiable. And I should mention, I'll, we'll mention a reference to this at the end, uh, our uh, colleague Tom Bowden wrote a very useful article in uh, which we've recently republished in New Ideal on the Lochner decision, in particular on the kind of reasoning that was given by Justice Holmes and why it would end up emptying the constitution of meaning, uh, of the meaning of liberty in just the same way as Thomas now seems to be doing uh, on other uh, liberties that, uh, that, that uh, have been defended you know, by his by his opponents, and it, it's it's interesting to see that uh, the conservative court is is now taking on board this uh, critique of Lochner in the way that uh, when when they used to be ostensible or nominal uh, defenders of the free market, they didn't so much. Those chickens coming home to roost. That's definitely the case. Um, if if. If Thomas's questioning is serious, when when he says and when we played, he said something like, um, "That's not what we've uh, thought or decided in Lochner." And it seems like he's not saying, "Well, okay, so maybe Lochner was decided." I mean, or well, the reversal of Lochner was that's incorrect, and the Lochner decision was actually correct, and it's Holmes's famous dissent in that decision that a few years later starts to win the day. Um, it, it, so it doesn't seem like he's suggesting, well, okay, so maybe if we, there's something wrong with having overturned Lochner and we need to go back to freedom on both sides. 
um, uh, in the intellectual, uh, in the in the kind of intellectual personal realm of which uh, procreation and sex is an issue, and in the economic realm, it seems like yeah, we've tossed out the freedom in the economic realm. Why shouldn't we do the same here? And what prevents us from doing the same here? And that is another aspect of what is interesting, and it, it's really. It's you can see this in Roe, you can see this in Casey, and you can see this in the oral arguments. In, in in this case, the focus is almost exclusively on whether the woman has a right to this and how to think about this. Where does it come from? The line of questioning we're getting from Thomas is: Does it is it privacy? Is it autonomy? It can't be liberties. I'm not even going to mention liberties. Um, there's almost no discussion of where, so the constitution is going, supposed to be a grant of power to the government. And more broadly, the American conception is, it's not the government's power is unlimited, except for some rights that people have that it can't trespass on. That's not at all the American conception. You have to justify why government has a power. And there's almost no discussion of like, why does government have a power to start to impose its impose controls and its view about procreation? Why does it have a power to say, yeah, we need more kids, so we've got a real interest in seeing fetuses brought to term, or there's too many people in America, so we're going to impose something like a one-child policy on family? Where does the government get that power? Um, and there's almost no discussion of this. And people think of Thomas as he's someone who will reign in government power, but he doesn't seem at all concerned, at least in the, the oral arguments are not the same as a decision. And it, so you can't read too much into a person's view just from what he's asking questions about and so on. So it will be interesting when a decision comes, but if the decision does not try to uh, articulate where the government's power comes from, then you're in effect treating it, yeah, the government can do anything except for there's some rights that people possess, which, uh, okay, you can't trespass on that, but you can do anything else. And that's not the American conception of government. Okay, I think we should, we should move on to another big topic that was up for debate in these oral arguments, and that is the status of the fetus. Obviously, if you think we have a right to liberty, that doesn't include the right to infringe on someone else's liberty. And so the big question is whether abortion rights would do something like that, abortion affects the fetus. How are we to understand whether or not it has any rights? And the Roe decision, of course, says that it, it doesn't prior to viability. There are all kinds of questions that the conservative critics have uh, about that criterion and others that they propose. And we should now take a look at some of that discussion. So one thing that gets discussed in the, these oral arguments is the idea that the possibility of fetal pain, something that happens in their allegation prior to viability, uh, the, potential to the potential to feel pain, or uh, it should be the relevant criterion. And there's an exchange now that Justice Sotomayor has with the Mississippi Attorney General on this topic. So let's take a look at this clip. In regular cases, courts decide whether science fits the Daubert standard. 
Um, obviously, under the Daubert standard, the minority of people, a gross minority of doctors, who believe fetal pain exists before 24, 25 weeks, it's a huge minority, and one not well-founded in science at all. So um, I don't see how that really adds anything to the discussion. That a small fringe of doctors believe that pain could be experienced before a cortex is formed does it mean that there's been that much of a difference since Casey? Uh, we, we pointed out as an example, Your Honor, of where Roe and Casey uh, improperly preclude states from taking account for these things. And they should be able to be concerned about the, about a fact of uh, a, a, an unborn life being poked and then recoiling in the way uh, one of us recoiled. What I find interesting about this exchange, and it's, I think, representative of some other things that are discussed in these arguments, is what Sotomayor and her uh, colleagues do and don't say in response to this kind of argument. Their main focus is to try to challenge the idea that the fetus really does have the potential to feel pain, to, to question the science of that. And I actually do think that there are grounds for questioning that science, the, the allegations about the science on that. But leave that aside, because what they don't do is they don't question or challenge the relevance of any of this science at all, even if it turned out that the, the fetus could suffer pain uh, due to an abortion. The question is, what does that have anything to do with the question of whether the fetus has any rights uh, or therefore whether the woman uh, has the right to abort it? If the defenders of abortion rights in this case really saw abortion as a kind of liberty right, which I think they should, they would scoff at the idea that the ability to feel pain would be in any way symbolic of uh, a fetus's possession of a liberty right. The liberty is the right of an intellectual being, a being who needs to be able to plan his life, to make decisions, to be left free from the interference of other people. And that the mere capacity to feel pain is not uh, indicative of being that kind of being. Uh, there are plenty of animals that experience pain, which most of the critics of abortion rights don't think have rights. Uh, I don't think they do either. Uh, but the, the mere fact that you can feel it, if you, even if you could, doesn't mean that you have any rights, doesn't mean that the state has a role in protecting you or your rights. At most, it would mean that there's a, there's a moral consideration that if we have compassion for any kind of creature that experiences pain, that we should take some measures to alleviate it. Um, but that's something that's very easy to do. It's a, it's a regular practice to be able to give uh, a fetus analgesia and to make sure that it doesn't feel anything uh, if, if it's you know, late enough stage. And that would be the simple solution to it. And it wouldn't be any kind of basis for saying that the fetus has some kind of rights. And they don't even want to have that debate. Uh, even, even the defenders of abortion rights don't want to do it. Any thoughts on that? It's worth, yeah, it's, it's worth pointing out some of why they don't want to have that debate, I think. And that goes back to the conception of what they think they're balancing. And that I don't think anyone on the court is thinks that Roe gets it wrong from the perspective of it, it's already too dismissive of the woman's right to abort. Um, I think they're, try, they're trying to preserve it 
And indeed, in the debate today, I don't think there's many who will argue Roe didn't go far enough. And you're putting it in terms of the, the real American conception. The issue is, do we have any being other than the woman who has rights? But the way it's put in Roe is not in terms of rights. And I think that's important. It's in terms of the interests. It's in terms of the interest of the state in the health of the woman. And it's in terms of the interest of the state in potential life. So there's not a claim that it has rights. They don't even, there's so far from looking at it like that. It's that you've got something that's a potential. So they recognize it's not an actual, it's just a potential, but the state has some kind of alleged interest in seeing potential life become actual. And so if you tell what, but it's not a being that has rights, her view, unfortunately, I think is what's rights have to do with it. It's just there's a, something here that has a potential and the state has an interest. And it's not our obligation to explain where this interest of the state comes from, how to think about it, where the constitution or state constitutions give state governments power to um, pursue this interest at the expense of, the, of individual citizens' actual rights. So it, the balancing, it's already charitable to put it, what they're trying to balance is different rights. And then the question is like, why do they think a fetus has rights? It's no, we're not balancing rights. We're balancing something much more nebulous than that. And that's, we've got things with competing interests and not even actual interests, but it's a potential that could have interest. And we have an interest in developing that potential. And it is the, the idea that you could come up with any intelligible way to balance that is actually a fantasy. So part of the reason that the fetal pain issue comes up is because it's actually one of the explicit rationales for the Mississippi bill that's uh, in dispute. It's right there in the text of the bill that this is part of why they pick 15 weeks. Uh, but another potential, another possible criterion for uh, when the, the interests so-called of the fetus count is conception. And while this isn't something that the, I think the, advocates for this law argue about explicitly. It's implicit in a number of the arguments that they make, for instance, when they're trying to explain why uh, the constitutionally protected liberties to marriage and travel, et cetera, why those are protected and abortion isn't given the same kind of default protection. One of the things that they say is, well, abortion is different from those insofar as it actually involves taking a life. And of course, that is exactly one of the questions that should be up for debate. And the fact that they take it for granted and beg the question is something that uh, Justice Sotomayor actually calls out at one point in these arguments. And here, I think it's interesting to listen to the exchange. This is our next clip. The viability line discounts and disregards state interests and the undue burden standard has all, all of the problems. How is your emphasize. interest anything but a religious view? Um, the issue of when life begins has been hotly debated by philosophers since the beginning of time. It's still debated in religions. Um, so when you say this is the only right that takes away from the state the ability to protect the life, that's a religious view, isn't it? Because it assumes that a fetus is life at when? You're not drawing here. When do you suggest we begin that way? Your Honor, I, I Aside from putting it aside from religion, 
I'll, I'll try to, I, th I think there might be more than one question and I'll do my very best Justice Sotomayor. Um, I, I think this court in Gonzales pretty clearly recognized that before viability, we are talking with unborn life with a human organism. And I think the philosophical questions Your Honor mentioned, all those reasons that they're hard, they've been debated, they're, they're, they're important, they're, those are all reasons to return this to the people because the people should get to debate these hard issues. And this court... And, uh, this exchange, Ankar? Yeah, so the... Um, so I think this is the, I think the only time in the oral arguments that the issue of what exactly is the state's interest here comes up explicitly that when she puts it, well, isn't the interest you're asserting um, a religious interest? And I think it is, but you would have to argue that. And part of what we were just talking about, that you have to distinguish between a so-called interest and rights, and rights require actual independent human beings who are functioning, and you can think of them as living and pursuing their happiness. And then there's an issue of what is such an independent entity when they come into contact with or interaction with other human beings? What is their sphere in which they can act independently? Um, and when is it that they can't? So you have to, that has to be really understood when you're dealing with actual independent human beings. That's not what we're dealing with here. And so there's not an issue of rights. And then the question is, if the government, I mean, Sotomayor would not put it like this, but the real question is, so if there's not an issue of protecting rights, what is the state, what is it asserting that it has some kind of goal or claim or interest in? Um, the whole, as the declaration puts it, the whole purpose that for which governments are instituted, for which governments are created and designed in the American conception is to protect rights. And when there's not an issue of protecting rights, then like, what is the government doing and what is it asserting as a claim? And I think it's right to think that what is being asserted here is an essentially a religious view that our religious dogmas say that um, at, from conception, the embryo or fetus is sacred and it's a sin to abort it um, and it's a duty it's a, but a religious duty to bring it to term and this is part of what God's plan for us was and so that's the viewpoint and when he says we should return it to the people that's a equivocation in terms of thinking of the American system of government between two things one of which is legitimate and one of which isn't what is legitimate in returning it to the people is to returning it to individuals as individuals. But this is what the whole concept of rights means. You have a right to abort. It's not you have to abort. And if you have a religious view that says, if I got pregnant, I didn't want to get pregnant. Um, I was trying not to get pregnant, but I'm pregnant. And now I have to bring this to term. If that's your view and you want to enact it, I think it's an irrational view. Um, but if you want to enact it, you're free to do that. So to return it to the people would be yeah, the people who don't want to abort um, don't have to. And the people who do would have the freedom to do so. But when he says return it to the people, he means return it to the people to vote on so that I can tell not I can say, well, if uh, if I were a woman, that if I get pregnant, no matter what, I'm going to bring it to term. No, it's to tell you that I'm gonna force you to do that. That's the view of what it means to return it to the people. And he thinks that's an American pro-freedom view. And it's also interesting how 
little pushback there is against that, even by the alleged defenders of abortion rights on the court, the kind of left progressive wing of the court can't challenge this if because the the idea that the people have the right to democratically decide the laws of the land, regardless of however many individuals' rights they may compromise, is is something that they urge usually in connection with all kinds of other policies. And it's part of the reason why, for instance, economic liberties have uh, been infringed upon and justified by this court in so doing. And so what this uh, case against Roe is doing is again, it's it's another chicken coming home to roost. It's, it's, it's saying, just like we've deferred to the democratic majority to decide what rights there are uh, in economics, we're gonna do this on social matters as well. And if, it just so happens that uh, the majority of people are religious and have a certain conception of what the state's interests should be. And if part of that interest includes protecting uh, uh, life at conception, so be it. And there's just, there's really no way that the, that the defenders of abortion rights have of pushing back against that, that wouldn't involve tossing so many of their other precedents on questions of uh, economic regulation and the like. Um, I should also just comment quickly on the issue of the uh, what is and what isn't the beginning of life, because there's a there's an argument here Mississippi is making. They're drawing on the uh, Gonzalez decision, which was what overturned the partial birth abortion ban, and he's saying that court recognized that uh, unborn life is still a human organism. Well, whether the court recognizes it or not, you can only make that claim by engaging in another kind of equivocation. And nobody denies that the embryo or the fetus is human in the sense that it is representative of the beginning of the human life cycle. It has human DNA. It's not a alligator fetus. It's a, it's a human fetus. But it's one thing to say that it is a human fetus because it's part of that species and has that genetic potential. It's another thing to say that it is the life of an individual human being with rights. And this, when it's, whenever this debate is put in terms of when does life begin, uh, that equivocation is so easy to make and it obscures what's really the fundamental question. Uh, there's no question that there's life there. The question is whether it's individual human life, uh, the kind that we think has, has rights. Um, so there's, there's definitely some problems with the different criteria that have been proposed for why um, the preterm fetus should get some kind of protection from the government. But of course, the standard that, that the, the government has to defend is the, is the viability standard of Roe. That's what's now under attack. And well, there's problems with that standard too. And these come out in these exchanges. And we should now take a look at a clip of an exchange between Justice Alito and uh, Ms. Rickleman about the viability standard and see how well she does defending it. What would you say in defense of that line? What would you say to the argument that has been made many times by people who are pro-choice and pro-life that the line really doesn't make any sense that it is as Justice Blackman himself described it, arbitrary. The, the woman's, if a woman wants to be free of the burdens of pregnancy, that interest does not disappear the moment the viability line is crossed. Isn't that right? 
No, Your Honor. And if I may make a few points to answer your question. First, I think the state views of viability is arbitrary because it completely discounts the woman's interest. But viability. No, but does a woman have, does, uh, upon reaching the point of viability, does not the woman have the same interest that she had before viability in being free of this pregnancy that she no longer wants to continue? Viability is a principled line, Your Honor, because in ordering the. Well, I'm trying to see whether it is a principled line. Yeah, you agree with me at least on that point, that uh, a woman still has the same interest in terminating her pregnancy after the viability line has been crossed. Yes, Your Honor, but the court balanced the interest and in okay. ordering and the interest at the state. On, on the other side, the, the fetus has an interest in having a life, and that doesn't change, does it, from the point before viability to the point after viability? In, in some people's view, it doesn't, Your Honor, but what the court said is that those philosophical differences couldn't be resolved well, what in is a way. The, that, what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. What is the philosophical argument, the secular philosophical argument for saying this is the appropriate line? There are those who say that the rights of personhood should be considered to have uh, taken hold um, at a point when the fetus acquires certain independent characteristics. But viability is dependent on medical technology and medical practice. It has changed. It may continue to change. No, Your Honor, it is principled because in ordering the interest at stake, the court had to set a line between conception and birth, and it logically looked at the fetus's ability to survive separately as a legal line because it's objectively verifiable and doesn't require the court to resolve the philosophical issues at stake. I thought this exchange was really interesting because, so Alito is being critical of the viability line because he's he's sympathetic with overturning Roe, but he's actually giving really good uh, polemical arguments against against the viability line. He's he's I think doing a good job showing why it's arbitrary, and the defender here just does not have a lot to say in defense of it. I mean, the best that she can say is, well, they had to draw a line between A and B somewhere, uh, and so they split the difference, and this was roughly in the difference, but. Uh, there's the way that they've done it, what he, what I think Justice Alito shows is that the way that they've done it doesn't, doesn't do it in any kind of principled way. Um, there's a conflict between alleged interests, whether it's the interest of the fetus or, or the interest of the state in childbirth versus the interest of the woman, either way, that, that whether it's before or after viability, those interests are still there. And if it's supposed to be some kind of balancing of interests, Rickleman here is not able to articulate in what way or by what standard that balance has been achieved because the conflict remains uh, regardless. So there's there's a contradiction here. Either the woman doesn't have this liberty or the state doesn't have uh, this interest. Something needs to give. They're not explaining how to do it in a principled way. Uh, and I, I would just add on top of all of that, that um, you mentioned earlier that, Ankar, that part of the problem with the anti-abortion argument is that it equivocates between a potential and an actual, that it says the fetus is a potential human being, therefore it has rights. Well, actually only actual human beings do. And it's the same issue here, that viability is just another potential. It's the potential to survive uh, if, if you are given uh, extensive medical intervention. Um, but it, that's not something that you're actually doing when you're viable. So that I can't think of a principled reason why viability should count uh, as a standard here. And I don't think that the defenders of, of Roe are doing a good job explaining otherwise. Yeah, I don't think they there is an explanation that they can give that would be even plausible, let alone correct. But I would say this, that so I reread 
Roe and Casey. And I think the way they think of the balancing is something like this. It's not the same as saying this is a principled view and viability is a, is a principle that makes sense of this. But to try to get a little bit into their head, part of what Alito was asking is, doesn't, isn't it really if the woman decides she doesn't want to bring, to give birth, that interest remains, it, that you can have that interest at two weeks that she's pregnant, at nine weeks, at 15 weeks, at 25 weeks, at 30 weeks, that interest remains constant. And then there's the question of how to think of the supposed state interest in this. And I think the way they think about it, at least in probably Roe, and I think certainly Casey, is you're dealing with a potential that gets closer to actual. So the state has a potential interest in, uh, sorry, has an interest in potential life. But that interest is pretty small at the start of pregnancy. So like the women's interest stays the same and the state's interest is like this. It starts off really small, but as you get closer to nine months, its interest in potential life is going up. And so the balancing early on is, oh yeah, for the women should, the woman should be able to decide I'm going to abort. And the state has very little interest that can override this. And as you get closer to nine months, the state interest keeps going up. And at some point, you really have to balance. And at some point, the state interest can trump the women. And this is, in Casey, they say, we reaffirm what was in Roe, that in the later stages of pregnancy, for Roe, it's like the last trimester. But in the later stages of pregnancy, the government can even prescribe abortion. Like you can't abort unless your life is hanging in the balance. And that's that, that's the way that they're thinking about it. Now, is there a principle that it makes sense of that? No, because there is no such interest of the state in potential life. But I think that's how they're thinking about it and why they have this, in, in Roe, it's this kind of trimester division. In Casey, it's viability. It's like it's the pivot point for them sort of when now the state interest is getting to be more important than the woman's interest. And that's how they think, like when they think that they're balancing, that they're doing something scientific, that's I think what they think they're doing. Yeah, I think that's probably the most charitable uh, reading of it that you can give. But when you, when you put it that way, I think it really brings out how difficult it would be to justify this, this conception of, of a state's interest. What, yes. what exactly is the state's interest in childbirth? Is it is it that well we need more taxpayers to uh, to fund the welfare state? Uh, we need to have uh, workers to draft into our proletarian collective. When when you think of it that way, it 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 really gives the lie to the idea that there's any kind of individualistic justification for laws against abortion. It 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 delivers the whole case into some kind of economic collectivism, which is is really hard to see how you could justify. But that goes back to what you've been um, bringing up, right, and rightly stressing that this is how they think about the economics, that it is collective like this, and it's in terms of the, the country has certain economic interests that the government has to enforce. And yeah, if it's overriding people's individual rights, that's okay, because it has there's national interest. And the Fed has an interest in having full employment and low inflation. And so, and so it has to have all kinds of powers. 
like it's very collectivistic in in the they're thinking about why do the supposed states economic interests trump individual rights in certain circumstances and cases and then it's again it's an extension to well but the, what doesn't the state have other interests like that 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 are have to be in, interpreted in a very collectivistic way and they override the individual and his rights so looking at the clock on card, do you think we should go to the last clip or should we go to questions? Um, probably go to questions. We can bring this up. The, the last issue that we were thinking of bringing up in this podcast, we can bring it up in Clubhouse. Okay. So uh, I'll start by saying thank you to a few people who've uh, given some super, super chat donations. And maybe we should start with one of their questions first. Uh, someone asks, I think Thomas is very religious and anti-abortion. Maybe he doesn't want to bring in religion or can't. Is that perhaps what's motivating his, uh, as you put it, a concrete bound reading of the, inter uh, of the constitution? Is that one possible motivation or is there, is there something uh, other some other intellectual consideration for him what would you say Ankar I don't see it as as especially religious I do think a religious mentality tends to be concrete bound um so the it and religion itself masquerades as having principles but what what it really has is concrete dogma don't work on Sunday, don't eat this food, don't eat. And, and if you ask, like, what's the principle uniting this? There is none other than to just to say, well, this is what God commanded. But what he commands is a whole list of very concrete, specific prohibitions and sometimes duties as well. This is what you cannot do and this is what you have to do. So there's a tendency for religious people to be concrete bound. Um, and it, and that, so there might be some element of that in Thomas's thinking. But it, it's in part the, this, his judicial philosophy, I think, it, it pushes and the, the forms of originalism and whether if he's completely an originalist and what that has various flavors and so on. But that conception of how to read texts, how to think about what the law means and so is very concrete bound in the end. So I think that's more significant. And then it's, I think, I mean, as we touched on in the clips we played, there's a deliberate avoiding of the issue of liberty because I think the there's a probably a self-conception that I'm on the side of liberty for Thomas. And yet, how does he would he really integrate that as, as sort of a self-conception, a self-image that that's part of who I am with like why all of a sudden is liberty not relevant? here and instead of saying well you have liberty i don't want it's, it's but can you be more specific and that's a way of bypassing the issue and i suspect there's more that motivation going on on the issue of uh, whether religion or judicial philosophy is a, a bigger factor here it's worth pointing out that there's a there's a commonality between between religion and the at least the originalist judicial philosophy insofar as both have this element of kind of authoritarianism. The idea is we have to interpret the text of the Constitution in line with the intent of the framers and the founders, uh, not because we have a rational reason for thinking that they had a good philosophy of government, uh, but just because they're the ones who laid it down and we have to kind of treat them as authorities. And so we can't 
try to understand what principle might unite uh, their ideas or their statements, but rather all we have is their words. And so we end up reading their words kind of like we read the Ten Commandments and maybe we can do uh, uh, some casuistry with regards to how, to how to interpret and apply them, but that's all we've got to go on. Let's take a look at some other questions that came in. Uh, this one uh, at the bottom, I think is interesting. Other than circumstances of non-consensual intercourse, choice is made in an act that causes fertilization. When does a fetus have a choice? This is a question that came in on Zoom. And it, if I understand where that kind of question usually comes from, it's, it's the kind of question that says, look, you have a choice about whether or not to get pregnant. And therefore, if we believe in individual responsibility, you've made your choice and now you've got to stick to it. And so therefore abortion isn't moral and shouldn't even be legal. And I just wanna say in response to that idea, well, first, yes, it's true. You do make a choice, except uh, non-consensual intercourse. You do make a choice, but the question is what does individual responsibility mean does it mean that if, let's say, for example, you've made a, a choice where you take all necessary precautions and still uh, an accident happens that you can't do anything to correct uh, that outcome? We wouldn't say that about many other cases. So for instance, we wouldn't say about uh, someone who goes driving because they want to drive to work, even though they're wearing their seatbelt, they've taken all the precautions, they still get into an accident uh, that that was their choice. And so if they're going to exercise responsibility, even though they've been injured, they shouldn't go to the hospital to correct it. They should live with their choice. Going to the hospital should be illegal. We wouldn't say that. And so what I often think is really motivating this kind of individual responsibility point is, is, is the assumption that the fetus is, an, is itself an individual with rights, which we can't interfere with. And because you wouldn't say that about somebody who gets in an accident, uh, uh, needs to correct it, uh, isn't going to violate anybody's rights in doing it. We'd say the responsible thing for them to do would be to get the surgery to correct the, the accident. Uh, so it's only the idea that there's, a, there's another individual here whose rights are infringed on uh, that I think can motivate this kind of question. I think there are reasons to reject the idea that the fetus is such a being. There's also often, I think, a kind of anti-sex bias that goes into this kind of question where you're assuming it's not responsible in the first place even to be having sex, that the responsible thing to do would be to abstain. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily part of the question, but it can be part of the question. Um, so yeah, the fetus doesn't have a choice, uh, but that's in part because the argument here at least is that the fetus isn't an individual that, that can make any choices until it's born. And at that point, yeah, it, it should have rights. Yeah, that's good. Any other questions we should take before we break? I don't have uh, the doc. I opened the wrong document, so I don't have the document okay. in front of me. Uh, you can decide. Here's one that just came in from Zoom. What does it say about our culture that no Supreme Court justice can focus on what it philosophically means to be human? Uh, there's a lot of philosophical discussions that are happening in this, in this oral arguments that we just heard, but yeah, there's not too many attempts by either party to take a step back and think about what rights are, whether we need them, where they come from. Thoughts on that question, Ankar? Um, well, th those are, I mean, they're related issues, but they're two different, or they're distinguishable about, there's not, so the, as you read the question, it was, 
They're not thinking about what it means to be human. Um, and that's, it's related to the issue of rights, but it's not exactly the same thing. And the road decision is interesting in that it deals a little bit with the issue of personhood. That's how we put often in the law. And can you, so it, it's trying to say, we're not gonna get into the thorny religious slash philosophical issue of where does life begin and how to think about that, or when does human life begin? But to think about is a fetus a person, that there's part of what Roe, the, the, the majority opinion is arguing, is there's nothing in the law and in American precedent to suggest that the embryo or fetus is viewed as a person. And, and when we've got clauses about the people in the state or something, that it includes fetuses and embryos, so that it's never been thought of as a person. So there is that kind of view in the background, which is right from a philosophical perspective, that an embryo or a fetus is remains part of a woman. You don't have an independent functioning human being um, that has fully formed faculties and so on, and is acting independently. Now, is now has, you can speak of it as a life independent from the woman. You don't have that. And that's part of um, the issue of bypassing rights. The more that they had to argue, know that that's what you're dealing with, the more implausible it would be. And to put it in terms of just, well, there's interests here. And there's the woman's interest and there's the state interest in the health of the woman and there's the state interest in potential life and so on. It just opens it up that um, we don't have to talk about rights. And then in that context, the issue of just a person or a human being then isn't as relevant as all because we're not even saying it's, we're just saying it's potential. Um, so we don't have to talk about these issues. So allowing it to go to, yeah, what's, it's not an issue of rights. It's just about we've got competing interests. That, or, or I mean, you've. I think you've lost the whole thing if you allow that move. And that's the sense in which it's predictable for Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is a real compromise. And in a compromise, the issue is which principle is going to be in the ascendancy for on what you're compromising on. And you could see in Roe that it's likely that the issue of liberty is not going to be what's governing. And this, that they're making so much about privacy and so on, is they don't know how to really articulate the principle of liberty. And the other side knows how to articulate its religious position. Um, and so that you see a weakening of Roe, and Casey is a weakening of Roe, that I think is, that's was the likely outcome. Well, we will see which, uh... If, uh, if, all, if any or all of these chickens come home to roost sometime in June uh, or the summer when the court usually issues decisions, and I suspect it's going to be a very interesting dis decision, we'll have to probably talk about again. Uh, there are a lot of other yeah, questions yeah. that came in, but we're not gonna have time for them. Uh, however, the next thing that we're going to be doing is moving to Clubhouse. And uh, if you've got your Clubhouse app, you can look up the Ayn Rand Club We'll be talking about just having a further conversation about the very topic we've been discussing now, talking about should the Supreme Court overturn Roe. So please join us there right after the broadcast today if you'd like to talk about more if your question didn't get answered. Uh, 
Um, otherwise, I should also share with you, I think, some resources. If you'd like to learn more about ARI's position on the abortion controversy, Ayn Rand's views on the abortion controversy, here are places to look on the web. Uh, Leonard Peikoff, Ayn Rand's intellectual heir, has a nice, concise article called Abortion Rights or Pro-Life, which you can read if you go to bit.ly slash rights, And he uh, talks about Ayn Rand's views, applies them to the general issue in a very concise and I think convincing way. I've written a couple of articles on this subject myself, one which takes all of Ayn Rand's views on this topic and condenses them into a single article. That's called Ayn Rand's Radical Case for Abortion Rights, which you can read at bit.ly slash Bayer Abortion Rights. Uh, and that uh, includes, by the way, material on Ayn Rand's views about how we should have abortion rights right up until the point of birth. Also another article, Science Without a Philosophy Can't Resolve the Abortion Debate. That's where I take on the allegations about fetal pain, whether or not that's relevant to the abortion rights dis dispute. That's at bit.ly slash philabortiondebate. And I mentioned also that our colleague Tom Bowden had an article on the Lochner case and on Justice Holmes' dissent, and which eventually laid the groundwork for overturning Lochner. Uh, and that is an article we recently republished in New Ideal. You can read that at bit.ly slash empty constitution. So if you enjoyed watching us today, there are lots of ways you can follow us in the future. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Click that bell button to get notifications whenever we go live. If you're watching a recording of this, uh, please be sure to leave a comment, uh, like it, share it with your friends. That helps optimize the algorithm so more people join and see what we're doing. Same thing if you're on Facebook, please like and comment on and share that post as well. Uh, and if you have any questions about topics that have come up today, if you'd like to send us an email, you can send that to newideal at einrand.org. We read everything that comes in. We try to answer as many of them as we can. We use your suggestions for future topics. And we also just like to hear uh, what you think goes well and what doesn't about these episodes that we do. I think that's all we've got for today. We'll move shortly to Clubhouse, but thanks for joining us today on CAR. And thank you everyone else. We will be back next week with another episode. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.